Well, welcome this morning. It is good to see you. I think my mic's coming on here. It's good to see you in this new year and a great pleasure to be able to share the Word of God with you. And we want to say congratulations to Daniel on his 60th birthday as well. Happy birthday there, Daniel. 61? Oh, 61. Oh, his daughter messed up a little bit, but... <laughs> 61. Congratulations on that. Well, if you have your Bible, please take your Bible and go over to Psalm 8. This is where we want to focus this morning. What a tremendous psalm this is. And I know that we read this a little bit earlier, and Jeff had an opportunity to read it, but I'd like to read it again just to fix it in your mind. So follow along as I read, would you please? O Lord, O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth, who displays your splendor above the heavens. From the mouth of infants and nursing babies, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars, which you have established, what is man that you remember him and the son of man that you care for him? Yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. You make him to rule over the works of your hands. You have put all things under his feet, all sheep and oxen, and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heaven, and the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all of the earth. Psalm 8 is the only psalm out of all the psalms about creation, which includes Psalm 19 and Psalm 29, Psalm 104, that is exclusively addressed to Yahweh. It is a corporate prayer of adoration and a profound prayer, to say the least. It's not a psalm about creation. It's really a psalm about the God who is the creator. It is a psalm that marvels in the reality that our transcendent God would grant dominionship to lowly human creatures over his magnificent created domain. That's why we have entitled this message, God's Majesty Condescends to Man's Frailty. Because this psalm really is a lyric echo of Genesis 1. It carries a very strong emphasis of praising Yahweh for designing the universe and ordaining all that man is in the climax of that creation. When you read this psalm, I think it's obvious, even to the most casual reader, that it, at its core, affirms man's delegated power and authority in creation. You can see that in verses 5 through 8. But this must be balanced with the truth that this limited power and authority is bracketed by verse 1 and verse 9. It's bracketed by those two things. That is, giving ultimate praise to Yahweh who ordained it. One commentator made this statement, human power is always bounded and surrounded by divine praise. Doxology gives dominion its context and legitimacy. 
Think about that. It was God's purpose to always give man power and authority in this area of creation. But when it is devoid of his praise, that's verses 1 and verse 9, it's perverted into abuse and authoritarianism. And you can see this throughout the world today. I'm not telling you anything new. You've got atheistic politicians and governments whose God is power, repressing and killing people, international mega business moguls whose God is money, destroying the income and the health of people to be wealthy, public educational institutions whose God is influence, destroying the malleable minds of youth, in order to control those minds. Husbands using their authority to abuse their wives. Bosses use their authority to extract whatever they want from their employees. Parents use their authority to mistreat their children. And that list can go on and on in the culture in which we live. When power and authority is not bracketed by praise, it always leads to abuse and authoritarianism. That is always true. Dominionship must always be managed by doxology. Dominionship is ruthless when doxology somehow is removed. Human beings have been invested with rule and responsibility within Yahweh's creation. There is no doubt about that. And that, in fact, is a truly marvelous thought. However, when it is not restrained by divine praise, it is inhumane. It causes incalculable agony, incalculable suffering. Show me someone who continually praises the Lord, and I will show you someone whose authority is governed by humility. Divine praise reminds you of your smallness and God's greatness. It is where true humility finds its ultimate source. That's where it's at. It is where a person who has a considerable amount of authority and power will never misuse it when they maintain a view of their own smallness. Augustine once made the statement, it was pride that changed angels into devils. It is humility that makes men as angels. This is what verse 1 and verse 9 does in this psalm. It hymns in man's rule with majestic praise. It shows man how puny he is, therefore magnifying the marvel that Almighty God would ever entrust to him any dominionship whatsoever. In fact, in verse 2, that is where David begins, emphasizing the helplessness and littleness of man's being as infants and nursing babies. You see that in verse 2? It's a picture of powerlessness, impotence, weakness. All of this is contrasted by an all-powerful, almighty, omnipotent God And the disparity in that particular sense is really unsettling. Anyone who acknowledges this reality would never misuse their authority because they are always aware of their own impotence. 
A man without effectual praise is a man full of pride. Dominionship becomes domination. Authority becomes authoritarianism. Rule becomes ruthless. If you are a person without praise and doxology, the nefarious seed of cruelty is already sown in your heart. If you have no time for praise of Almighty God, then the seeds of that cruelty is already well sown deep in your own heart. Immanuel Kant used to say, he who is cruel to animals becomes hard also in his dealings with men. We can judge the heart of a man by his treatment of animals. Well, Kant got it wrong. The greatest cruelty is failure to give proper praise to your creator. So it would be much better to say this. He who is cruel to God becomes hard also in his dealings with men. We can judge the heart of a man by his treatment of his creator. Think about this. When you are mean, antagonistic, hateful, arrogant, prideful, harsh, demanding, inconsiderate, and hurtful, you are denying the very Lord who gave you your ability and responsibility to practice dominionship over your own mouth, your facial expressions, your tone of voice, your bodily gestures, all in relationship to other people. Cruelty raises its ugly head. You're failing in your stewardship of your life, abilities, and resources that somehow God has given you, and your life then lacks doxology. There's no praise in your heart, only the anti-praise of anger. That is the opposite of what David is talking about. So let's look how David instructs you in the importance of worshipful praise and its relationship to your daily life and to what you oversee in your life, your dominion and your stewardship of the dominion that God has granted you, which is a unique and very, very special privilege. So in order to see this, let's take a look first in verse 1 of the majesty of the Lord here is acclaimed. And the first thing that we come to is the subscript. Note that the subscript here of Psalm 8 says, For the choir director, according to the Giddeth, a psalm of David. Now, the choir director can also mean for a chief musician, meaning that this psalm was designed to be used in the regular times of worship among God's people in the temple Yet, you understand at this particular point when David is writing, the temple is not built. That doesn't happen until Solomon builds the temple. But this was David's way of preparing the people of Israel for corporate worship, especially after Solomon had completed the building of the temple. And then it says, according to the Giddeth, the word in the Hebrew language is a feminine adjective, and it comes from the word actually gath or winepress. Gath was a Philistine city. It was probably the name of uh, also a musical instrument created in that particular city, or either that or named after a melody that came from that particular city. 
So it is the title then of it is you find it in the same title of Psalm 81, Psalm 84, the Giddeth. Now the Septuagint, the Greek translation of the Hebrew Old Testament, uses the Greek term wine press. Lenon is the term, which really means wine presses, plural. It is a so this is a Psalm of David, and it reflects the deep thoughts of the worship that kind of flooded David's mind, worship that Yahweh accepted and included in his holy word. Now let's look at verse one. O Yahweh, our Lord, how majestic is your name in all the earth. This psalm immediately begins with a direct address to Yahweh and continues this direct address throughout the entire psalm. And here you're getting a very clear example and insight into the thoughts of David as he really worships the Lord. So what this does is this acclaims, it's acclaimed by his name. So first, David uses the divine tetragram, which is Yahweh. In some translations, it's translated Lord using all capitals. And then immediately he turns in the next phrase and in apposition, he uses the word Adonai, which means master or king. But in most translations, it's also translated Lord. In fact, it was a very sacred name, and you know this, that the ancient Hebrews would never pronounce the name Yahweh. And so as a result of that, in the ancient text, what they did was, when you came to the divine tetragram, which had four consonants to it, or four letters, hence tetragram, to it, they actually added the vowel pointings of Adonai, Adonai. So hence, with the concept or the pronunciation of Yahweh and the vowel pointings of Adonai in it, then came the name Jehovah. But the problem with that is there is no such name of God as Jehovah. It doesn't exist. Even some of our hymns are based upon that, but it's a fake name because there is no name. When the ancient Israel, Israeli people would come to the name Yahweh, they would never say Yahweh. They saw the vowel pointings and they would immediately pronounce Adonai. So anytime Jehovah Witness comes to your house, knocks on your door, you can tell them that even their name is a fake. <laughs> there is no such thing. There is no such thing as a Jehovah God. There's only Yahweh God, Adonai God. That's the only thing. And here David, in the very first phrase of the psalm, uses this particular name. King David calls Yahweh his master, his king. That's what it means. Yahweh here then um, is described by Adonai as being master or king. So everything in this psalm is dependent upon the fundamental assumption that Yahweh is the sovereign Lord and creator of all. It's an expression of his ultimate lordship. He is the sacred God of his people, and he is the Lord and master ruler of all. And when David is acknowledging the lordship of Yahweh, it is a direct reference to his glory being seen through the universe and in the heavens. Psalm 148 verse 13 says, Let them praise the name of Yahweh, 
For his name alone is set on high. His splendor is above earth and heaven. In addition to his name being acclaimed about creation, it's also acclaimed among his people. In fact, Psalm 113 and verse 4 says, Yahweh is high above all nations. His glory is above the heavens. You can see the emphasis upon the transcendence of Almighty God. We have in our evangelical world today a tendency and a real emphasis to try to bring God down to our level so that we can relate to God when in Scripture, David does just the opposite. He actually transcends God way above man, not bringing man down to our level, but trying to help us understand how transcendent and how exalted he is. Not only is this acclaimed by his name, but it's also acclaimed by his majesty. The second part of verse 1 says, How majestic is your name in all the earth. So the sense of majesty also is something that is terribly lost in our society today. And it's terribly lost even among people who profess to be devout Christians. Most Christians only have a very vague understanding of the breathtaking concept of majesty. The Hebrew term here refers to inspiring awe, reverence, and it's something related to size, strength, power, and authority. With Yahweh, it involves awesome greatness, goodness, strength, and beauty. It involves all of that. Psalm 96, verse 6, splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. Now, our culture has bloated our heads with ridiculous ideas about the greatness of man. Self-goodness of man, self-esteem, self-love, self-respect, self-worship, that we've almost totally lost the concept of divine majesty. We see ourselves in our make-believe human superpowers as supermen, superwomen, Thor, Falcon, Captain America, Doctor Strange, and on and on. The more man exalts himself, the more incapable he becomes in acknowledging the greatness, goodness, strength, and beauty of the Lord. We no longer see God as majestic because we are blinded by our own awesomeness. We think that we can do or become anything. And that's a cruel lie. During one of my lectures in the seminary, I had a student raise his hand and share an experience that he had as a substitute teacher in the public school system here in the area. He was assigned to teach a health class. And the assignment that came out of the health textbook was that he was supposed to give to those young students was to have the students list five reasons why they are awesome. And as soon as he gave the assignment, one of his young students raised his hand. You can see it, right? And asked, does it only have to be five? 
You get it. These kids get it. Those kids had no trouble believing they were awesome. What was that designed to do? To improve their self-esteem, right? Or as my kids used to say, selfish steam. When you believe you're awesome, then God is not. All greatness resides in us, not him. All goodness resides in us, not him. All power resides in us, not him. All beauty resides in us, not him. There's no sense of divine majesty in our thinking. Listen to this description of divine majesty. Quoting, perhaps you find yourself in need of fresh language for attributing greatness and power and glory to the God whom you worship in Christ. He's not only great, but good. Good in his greatness and great in his goodness. He is not only big, strong, imposing, indomitable, omnipotent. He is beautiful, attractive, stunning, compelling, glorious. He is the majestic one who delivered Israel at the sea and his church at the cross And we say with the psalmist, on the glorious splendor of your majesty and on your wondrous works, I will meditate. End of quote. Hence, that old chorus, majesty, worship his majesty, unto Jesus be all glory, honor, and praise. Majesty, kingdom authority, flow from his throne unto his own, his anthem raise. We sing it, but we don't understand it. His nature is majestic. It's lofty, high, noble, splendid. When was the last time your thoughts were bursting with the majesty of your God? It is the prerequisite for determining how you practice your own dominion in life. There's a second thing here that I think is really key, and that is the might of the Lord here is attested. The end of verse 1 all the way through verse 8. The central core of this corporate prayer, arranged as a temple hymn, focuses on the glory of the Lord. In fact, in verse 1, there in that third portion, it says this, who displays your splendor above the heavens. The word for splendor means glory. So our Lord has set his glory to be above the heavens. When you look at the heavens, they seem glorious, But God's glory far exceeds what you see in the heavens. When you go out at night away from the lights of the city and you look at the heavens, it is awe-inspiring. And you feel so small by comparison to everything that you see in the universe. If the cosmic reality of creation can do that to you, then when it says that the Lord's glory is set above all that you can see in those heavens, then it is truly awe-inspiring. The Lord's glory exceeds all that you see and marvel at creation. The the word for splendor here means heaviness or weight of importance, very similar to that of glory. 
power, splendor, or majesty. It is a state of highest honor. So Yahweh is the most important one in existence. He has glorified himself in all of creation, but especially, Psalm 8 says, in mankind. Especially in mankind. It is a splendor of Yahweh to form man from the red dirt and dust of the ground and to give him rule or dominion over his creation. Such amazing power and authority is unique to him. And David now gives us two reasons that why this is true. The first reason, it's attested by the weak confounding the mighty. This is not where we would normally go in our thinking, but the psalmist naturally goes there. The weak confounding the mighty. Listen to this. Verse 2 sometimes is confusing to many who read it. Verse 2 says, from the mouth of infants and nursing babes, you have established strength because of your adversaries to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. What does that mean? What is it that is most important, really, that comes from the mouth of a child or even a nursing baby? Listen to this. The main idea is that Yahweh works through many things that appear to be weak and frail and insignificant. The humble and the poor in spirit are the ones who most display his splendor and his glory. They are the things that most display his splendor and his glory. Now, I want you to see this. Let's go back to the New Testament for a moment and go over to Matthew 21. Matthew 21, here we drop into an episode in Jesus' life where he cleanses the temple. Not long, right after his triumphal entry into Jerusalem. And in verse 12, it says, And Jesus entered the temple and drove out all those who were buying and selling in the temple and overturned the tables of the money changers and the seats of those who were selling doves. Matthew 21, 12. And then verse 13 says, And he said to them, It is written, My house shall be called a house of prayer, but you are making it a robber's den. And the blind and the lame came to him in the temple, and he healed them. But when the chief priests and the scribes saw the marvelous things which he had done, and the children who were shouting in the temple saying, Hosea to the son of David, they became indignant and said to him, Do you hear what these children are saying? And Jesus said to him, them, quoting Psalm 8 and verse 2, Yes, have you never read out of the mouth of infants and nursing babes, babies? You have prepared praise for yourself. And he left them and went out of the city to Bethany and spent the night there. Now here we have children in the temple in Jerusalem who were shouting or possibly even singing loudly, Hosanna to the son of David. These children, in their excitement of seeing Jesus cleanse the temple of adult profiters, buying and selling sacrifices at exorbitant rates, and then healing the blind and the lame, 
burst forth in natural and great praise of Jesus. And they even used the messianic title, the son of David, to refer to him in praising him. That brought great splendor and glory to the Lord. But it made the chief priests and the scribes, the ones who really had the ultimate power and authority in society at that particular time, indignant. Jesus refers to Psalm 8 in verse 2 in his response to them there in verse 16. So children are not inhibited by custom or tradition. Oftentimes children just speak what's on their mind. What they saw in Jesus Christ caused them at this particular point to explode with joy and worshipful praise. The weak, the humble, the frail, they are the ones that magnify his glory. God uses the words of simple children through their unrestrained expressions of faith to demonstrate strength in silencing the wicked. Their words muted the sophisticated objections of the most educated elite of their society, the chief priests and the scribes. This is the way our God works. The Lord uses the weak to subdue the powerful. He uses the simple to silence the sophisticated. He uses the slow to overtake the swift. Isn't that great news? That means he can use me and you. That's great news. You'll find that some people will appear to be weak and vulnerable, but when they are divinely empowered, they will overcome the strength of the wicked. That's what David is saying. Let's go back to Psalm 8. David, in this sense, is saying, because of your adversaries, to make the enemy and the revengeful cease. So God uses the weak to do that. You will find that some people will appear to be weak and vulnerable, but they, when they are divinely powered, things change. Our Lord does not need to use powerful preachers or eloquent speakers to silence evil men. He can use even the most simplest of us to do that. Like the chief priests and the scribes of Jesus' day, there will always be powerful enemies of God who will pose a threat to the vulnerable righteous, but our Lord delights in using the weak to confound the mighty. In this, there is rooted his wondrous glory and splendor. Now let's turn our attention to verses 3 through 8 in Psalm 8, which really is the longest segment of this psalm. It's attested by entrusting dominion to mere mortals. The second reason here that the Lord's glory has been established above the heavens is how he has ordained mankind to have dominion over his creation. It shows how the Lord has graciously entrusted man with the ability for ruling over many aspects of his earth and heavens. God has delighted, uh, delegated to humanity a limited amount of power and authority he created children. Um, his created children have become his vice regions in the created domain. They are to serve his image and likeness and have dominion 
over the fish of the sea and over the birds of the sky and over the cattle and over all the earth and over every creeping thing that creeps on the earth. Genesis 1.28. There's that echo. They were to be fruitful and multiply and fill the earth and subdue it. Genesis 1.28. Man's power and rule is not something that he acquired himself. It was delegated. It came from God. God entrusted mankind with a stewardship of creation, but ultimately that creation all belongs to him. Charles Spurgeon calls this psalm the song of the astronomer. As gazing at the heavens, in verse 3, inspires the psalmist to meditate upon God's creation and man's place in it, Spurgeon further interprets the babes and nursing babies to whom God gives strength in verse 2 as referring to various weak men, David, the apostles, but also to the humility of Jesus Christ and then all who fight under Christ's banner. The baby Christ comes into the world to both save sinners and to conquer wickedness, placing evil men under his feet. Look at verse 3. When I see your heavens, the work of your fingers, the moon and the stars which you have established, what is man that you are remember him and the son of man that you care for him? So David, at this particular point, looks heavenward. He sees specifically the moons and the stars, suggesting that he is looking at the night sky. And by the way, this may be have been a habit of David. We know that when he saw Bathsheba from the top of his palace. In this particular sense, David is on the roof of his palace looking at the night sky. As a boy, I used to camp out in our backyard. And I would lay in the grass by the hours, transfixed by the vastness and the beauty of creation in the universe that I observed. David says that they are the work of the Lord's fingers, not just hands. They are the work of the Lord's fingers. Well, God has no fingers, but it's an anthropomorphic reference to the details and intricacies of creation, not just the vastness of it. Hands handle certain things, but fingers deal with details. When David sees how the sky is filled with stars, And measureless in scope, he feels so small. He senses his own finitude. The detailed attention that God gives to the sky, the size of the moon, and the innumerable stars stretching across the sky without end. Man is tiny, so insignificant by comparison. You can only conclude one thing. The Lord is so marvelously majestic, glorious, and powerful, and full of beauty. But then another thought comes rushing in upon David in verse 4. Why would such a transcendent God want to concern himself with measly man? Why would that be? Well, first, David actually queries two questions in one verse here in verse 4. What is man that you remember him? And the second is, what is the son of man that you care for him? Given the setting of the universe, human beings are undeniably frail and insignificant when you think about it. 
And so these two questions contain two important verbs. The first one has to do with remember. It means to, to take intentional thought of. Why do you, O oh Lord, take intentional thought of us as mere men? Why do you do that? It's often used to speak of acting upon something that you recall to mind. So David is amazed that the majestic God would do things for him and attend to his needs. The second verb there in verse 4 reinforces and kind of expands that idea that the Lord even cares. Now, this is a more deep and very personal verb. It means to feel concern or to have interest in mankind. No matter how frail or insignificant you think that you are, the Lord intervenes and actively carries out his specific plan for your life. That's what David is saying. No matter how insignificant you may think your life is, God is involved in every single detail of your life. Now look at verses five and six. You made, he says, uh, yet you have made him a little lower than the angels and you crown him with glory and majesty. You made him to rule over the works of your hands and you have put all things under his feet. These two verses here answer the question, what has God remembering and caring for mere mortals done for them? The answer to this question is that God made man less than, actually the word there is Elohim. Means divine beings. He made him less, and it's understood by the Septuagint and even by the New Testament as being angels. He made him less than angels or supernatural beings. He has crowned little man with glory and majesty, emphasizing dignity and the importance of his creation, which is another way of saying that man is made in the image and likeness of God. And those terms, image and likeness, that's used back in Genesis 1.26 have Chaldean roots that refer to ancient obelisks that a king would have made an image of himself to show his rule. And he would have these obelisks stationed made of wood or stone all over his kingdom. So everybody, and most people didn't read and write in those days, would look at those obelisks and say, oh yeah, that king rules here. So the idea between image and likeness is definitively tied to the concept of ruling and having dominion is the idea. The image and likeness of a king in a particular area and that that king rules that particular area. There's the idea. Man's rule or dominion is directly related to him bearing the image and likeness of God. So in verse 5, he speaks of man's glory and majesty And then immediately, in verse 6, he speaks of his rule. So those two things are inseparably tied together. Look at the end of verse 6. Now he talks about reflecting Genesis 128, to subdue and have dominion. God has put all things under his feet. This was an ancient way of saying, speaking of mastery and rulership, simply put, God's creation mandate was that man was granted the commission and the capacity to rule over all life on earth. Now look at verses seven and eight. It says, 
And it goes into specificity here in verse 7. All sheep and auction and also the animals of the field, the birds of the heavens, the fish of the sea, whatever passes through the paths of the sea. So this continues to restate the creation mandate of Genesis 1, 26 and 28. The sheep and oxen and animals of the field and birds of the heavens and the fish of the sea and whatever passes through the paths of the sea are under the authority of man. Human beings were entrusted with the great treasure and care for things in God's creation as the Lord has cared for him. But we know that something has gone terribly wrong. Sin changed everything. Sin, and in this particular instance, becomes rebellion against what God has done and against his authority. The human race is not ruled over God's creation as designed. In fact, creation is not in submission. It is in chaos because the lack of man's stewardship. Mankind's rule is marked by mismanagement, Greed, selfishness, cruelty, disease, and death. Man has rejected God's truth and made himself the center of his own universe. And for this reason, the Son of Man became incarnate, never ceasing to be divine, but emptied himself of all the independent use of his divine attributes and came in the likeness of man in order to fulfill God's plan. All dominion and authority has been given to him. And this is exactly what the author of Hebrews says. Take your Bible for a moment. Let's go over to Hebrews chapter 2. Look how Hebrews 2 chimes in on this very idea and weds it with the concept of what David is saying in Psalm 8. Hebrews chapter 2, verse 5. Speaking of God, for he did not sub to the angels the world to come concerning which we are speaking but one has testified somewhere saying what is man that you remember him that's psalm 8 or the son of man that you are concerned about him you have made him for a little while lower than the angels you have crowned him with glory and honor and have appointed him over the works of your hands you have put all things in subjection under his feet. For in subjecting all things to him, he left nothing that is not subjected to him. But now we do not see all things subjected to him. But we do see him who was made a little lower, uh, for uh, a little while lower than the angels, Jesus, because of the suffering of death, crowned with glory and honor, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it is fitting for him, for whom all things and through whom all things are all things, in bringing many sons to glory to perfect the author of their salvation through sufferings. For both he who sacrificed, uh, sanctifies and those who are being sanctified are all of one. For which reason he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will recount your name to my brothers. In the midst of your assembly, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children whom God has given me. Therefore, 
Since the children share flesh and blood, he himself likewise also partook of the same, that through death he might render powerless him who had power of death, that is the devil, and might free those who through the fear of death were subjected to slavery all of their lives. For surely he does not give help to angels, but he gives help to the seed of Abraham. Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in all things so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in things pertaining to God to make propitiation for the sins of his people. For since he himself was tempted in that which he has suffered, he is able to come to help those who are tempted. Now you begin to see here how significant this is. Even though all dominion and authority has been given to him, we do not yet see all things placed under his feet. Jesus Christ then comes in order to complete, complete dominionship that we have failed in. And this will happen at the end of the age. This will happen the second coming of Christ. Not only will he put all created life under his feet, but the last enemy that will be subdued, it says here in Hebrews 2, will be death. Man's ultimate enemy. Everyone who places their trust in the Lord then will share his dominion because they will reign with him. This is what Revelation 5 says. We study the book of Revelation here in Joint Heirs. What a tremendous passage. Revelation chapter 5, verse 11 and 12 says, Then I looked and I heard the voice of many angels around the throne, the living creatures and the elders, and the number of them was myriads of myriads and thousands of thousands, saying with a loud voice, Worthy is the Lamb that was slain to receive power and riches and wisdom and strength and honor and glory and blessing. And it just, it just goes on like this. That is the Lord's majesty. Thirdly, last of all, there is the majesty of the Lord affirmed finally in verse 9. Finally, this final verse repeats the worshipful praise and majesty of verse 1. So it's critical that you see how man's dominion must be limited and conditioned by doxology. It's imperative that you see that. When worshipful praise is missing from a person's life, then their control and rule over the things of this life will be chaotic and cruel. It is affirmed by his name. Praise must be given to the Lord. Now that you know that you have been given the capacity and privilege to reign over God's creation, even the fact that you were created at all illustrates the Lord's grace and mercy in your life. Yahweh should be praised throughout life and for all eternity. It is also affirmed by his majesty. The Psalms helps you to understand, as one commentator has written, God has chosen to display his majesty by enabling weak and vulnerable mortals to play a part in carrying out his plan for creation. That's what he's done. Charles Spurgeon captured the importance of Psalm 8. Let me conclude with this. Listen to what Spurgeon said. He says, The power of God is displayed in human weakness, strength out of babies' mouths, the way he glorifies himself by the least and causing them to show forth his praise to the confusion of his adversaries. There is a glory of God to be seen in creation. 
But in redemption, there are particularly great or bright manifestations. In creation, there was no opposition. When God framed the world, there was no opposing force to fight against him. He spoke it, and it was done. Absolute nothingness was no hindrance to the creation. In the sphere of mortal and spiritual beings, the enemy is met with, and here is a labor worthy of God to overthrow the enemy and still the evil voice that curses the Son of Man. So in conquering the opposition of the powers of evil, God displays a glory more remarkable than what he obtains by the greatest feats of creative power. Do you see that? There, that captures Psalm 8. Let me say it again. In conquering the opposition of powers of evil, God displays a glory more remarkable than what he obtains by the greatest feats of creative power. That's what our God has done. How majestic is his name. Let's bow for prayer. Gracious Lord, we are so grateful for your majesty. We're grateful for the way in which you have decided and ordained in eternity past that we would be created. And seemingly the last and lowest part of creation then would be elevated to a little bit lower than the angels. And so as a result of that, Father, we were given dominion. Father, there is no doubt in the fact that you are great, you are good, you are glorious, you are marvelous, and you are beautiful. Not just for what you've created in all the created domain, but because of your redemption. So gracious Lord, we pray that we will go forth today, not just appreciating the created realm in which we live, but, Father, appreciating the fact and glorifying in you because you have ordained us to be rulers over that creation with your image and likeness and to your glory and splendor. This we give you great praise in Christ's name. Amen.